Okay, I'm recording. Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. I have two brief announcements. Number one is that on my personal Facebook page, I'm doing a series every day of Pride Month. Happy Pride, everyone. On 30 days of relentless nonviolent resistance where I'm outlining some of the local activism I'm doing in my ward and in my community. It's going to be great, so follow that. You don't have to be friends with me on Facebook. These will be public posts, but, and you can find these at facebook.com slash Derek.Knox. All right. And the ne- next thing I want to say is today, if you are listening to this on Monday, June 6th, when this uh, is expected to drop... Today is um, an Emmaus FHE where I will be speaking. It will be online. It will be on Zoom. I will. You'll be able to find the link somehow, and I'll be speaking briefly. Oops, that's a miracle. On queer resilience, there will be a Q and A after I speak. It will start at eight thirty p.m. Eastern time today, if today is Monday, and it will end around nine forty-five p.m. Eastern. I can put a link to the event in the uh, show notes if, uh, like, I right. think by the time this episode drops, we should be able to have a, a link to the uh, to the service, and uh, it'll if we have that link, it'll be in the show notes. Can and you it, say and we and we can oh, also sorry. put it in our socials, like on 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 our Facebook as well. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what began or what uh, prompted your thirty days of nonviolent uh, nonviolent resistance? You said. Right. Um, Well, I want to be brief about this. It's just that I wanted to do some local activism and model it for others publicly and be publicly accountable. And to explain what I'm doing and why, you should just go and read these posts. It will explain it. So go go and read. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Well, if there's nothing else by way of introduction or church announcements as they were, want to uh, go ahead and uh, jump into the Come Follow Me for the week. But before we do, want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of... Ruth and uh, Samuel one through three this week. Um, there, there's a lot to go through, and uh, Derek has already stated that uh, he would like to be brief. So uh, let's just go ahead and talk about how we're going to go over this. We're, we are going to talk about a few things uh, just by way of introduction to the text, or things we want you to be uh, looking for in the text. We'll have a brief overview of the uh, of the story of Ruth and, of course, the historical context as well. And then we'll go ahead and dive into the text itself and talk about some of the other ideas that we may have touched upon prior in the introduction uh, as we go through the text. So, uh, Derek, what are some things you want to go over prior to diving into the text? Okay, I have four things real quick. Number one is that in our scriptural canon, there's always a canon within the canon. And some people say they don't do that, but everyone has particular texts that they use to norm the other texts or the central pieces by which they enlighten the under the other uh, other texts that may be unclear or challenging or problematic. And for me, Ruth is is one of these canons within the canon within the canon. One of my favorite books in the Hebrew Bible. I just love how it exp- and we're going we're going to get to see why later. But how do I how do you pick the canon within the canon because people on the um on the other side, the ones that want to promote oppression, they're going to find a canon within the canon too. So do you do you pick the texts that are exclusive and that are patriarchal and that are problematic and that are whatever? Or do you pick the ones that are inclusive, that speak to the love and character of Jesus? And that's what I use to pick my canon within the canon. For example, Matthew 25, that's a good example of something that helps me pick the canon within the canon. 
We're going to be judged not by what ordinances did you check off, but did you reach out to the outsider? That's that's the bottom line for me. And we'll see in the book of Ruth a lot of reaching out to the outsider, the widow, etc. So this is one of my most cherished texts, and it also centers the covenantal love between two women. We've got same-gender love here, and we'll, we'll talk more about exactly what that is later. Number two, we don't need to find a sexual relationship in the text in order for the text to be uplifting to LGBTs. We need to see how the heroes of the text were socially and culturally transgressive in their day, and this absolutely was. Even the ancient world understood that this is very transgressive, uh, and that is enough to help us in our day. In fact, gay sex by itself, without social, theological, and political liberation, isn't even queer. It's not, it's not even queer. Um, and number three... Ruth is a book that deals with death, trauma, famine, widows, migration, refugees, sexual harassment, and so forth. It's a great social justice text, and this is all packed into four really short chapters. In fact, if possible, I'd like you to pause the, the podcast, if you're in a place you can do that, and just read the whole text first. That may help uh, later on, and if you're not able to do that, just keep listening and then read the whole text later. And the fourth thing I want to name is that tonight uh, begins, tonight being actual tonight, Saturday, June 4th, begins uh, the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. This is translated as the Festival of Weeks sometimes. It's also called Pentecost, which is not the same as the Christian holiday of Pentecost. It's uh, connected, but it's not doesn't fall on the same date or celebrate the same thing. And... What's important about this is the book of Ruth is read and celebrated every year on Shavuot because Shavuot is a celebration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And like, what does that have to do with Ruth? Well, Ruth is um, adopts the covenant, right? And she does something that Abraham never did. Abraham never lived the Torah. He was hundreds of years before the Torah was revealed. And so the the journey of Ruth really models the Jewish adopt uh, acceptance of the Torah. So we will uh, uh, we'll get into the historical and story overview now. What do you have to say about that? Oh, I have nothing to add to all of that. I think the one thing I wanted to add to this whole, I mean, we're going to talk about the comparison with Abraham and Ruth a little bit later, are we not? Right. Okay, then I'm going to save that because like, that was the one thing that stood out to me. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about uh, the story itself and the history of this uh, text. So like the book of Ruth, it, it takes place at the same time. And I think we discussed this briefly last week in our discussion of uh, Judges. But it takes place at the same time as Judges, which is, uh, I think, the reason Ruth is placed here in the text in the first place. Uh, it covers the time from Joshua's death to the rise of uh, the Israel monarchy, though we're not entirely sure when during this time frame this happens, the events of Ruth. Except there was a famine in the land. That's about all we know in terms of how to place this uh, story chronologically. And the famine is what drives the initial story, the initial migration of Naomi's family from from uh you know from Bethlehem to to Moab like uh basically their their enemies as it were there's also no stated author of the text though most ancient jewish sources attribute the writing of Ruth to uh Samuel who uh, comes directly after Ruth uh Ruth herself was a moabite meaning she's descended from Abraham's nephew Lot and that makes her a gentile so uh you know, I think, Derek, you already said that this is a uh, pro-Gentile text, and we're going to talk about that in some uh, greater detail a little bit later. But uh, that's uh, that's that's an important part of this story as we as we talk about talk about Ruth. So uh, just by way of a quick recap of the story, because it looks like Derek and I, as we talked about uh, this text, seems like uh, the, our discussion of the text is going to be primarily thematic and not really... Um, what do you call it, chronological. So I'm going to go ahead and recap this story real quick, briefly, and then we're going to go into the text itself, talk about these themes as we go, and uh, probably be a little briefer on the chapter-by-chapter uh, -chapter commentary, but you know, we'll see what happens. But anyway, 
story of Ruth basically is there's a famine in Judah, and to escape the famine, Naomi, her husband, Elim- Elim- wow, can never say this, Elimelech, and uh, their two sons, they mo- they migrate to Moab, and in Moab, Naomi's husband dies, and then the two sons take Moabite wives, uh, Orpah and the title character, Ruth. The two sons also die. When Naomi hears that the famine in Judah is over, she decides to return to Bethlehem and tells Orpah and Ruth to go back to their mother's homes. Uh, They refuse at first and insist on going with her. They clearly had a good relationship up to this point, but Naomi's like, I don't got no sons for you to marry and therefore no security to offer you. Uh, Orpah does end up leaving. Uh, It looks like it's a reluctant leaving. But Ruth professes her loyalty and commitment to Naomi and then goes back to Bethlehem uh, with her. And when they get back, Ruth happens to uh, glean uh, because, you know, they're poor, they're destitute. So they're gleaning, which means like, you know, going into uh, these fields and picking up the leftovers. And they're gleaning in a part of a field that belongs to a rich man named Boaz. And Boaz takes notice of Ruth and is so impressed with her loyalty to Naomi that he guarantees both uh, provision and uh, protection for her. Uh, Naomi rejoices at her take from the gleaning and that somebody has taken notice of her, but then rejoices further when she finds out it was Boaz that took notice of her because Boaz isn't just a rich man, but also a near kinsman, uh, which bodes well for the impoverished husbandless uh, women. So Naomi picks up on the opportunity and reciprocates Ruth's initiative by seeking a husband for Ruth in Boaz. She tells Ruth to basically propose to Boaz. Ruth does so, and Boaz is down, so long as, you know, the nearest kin is not down, because Boaz isn't actually the closest relative uh, to perform the redemptive role for, uh, you know, for Naomi. And sure enough, the closest relative is not down, and Boaz steps in, marries Ruth, and then they give birth to Obed, who ends up being the grandfather of King David, and uh, subsequently the ancestor of Christ. So uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about, you know, what that means, the implications of all that, uh, where the hand of God is in all this, but that's, you know, basically the story real quick. So that said, we can go ahead and go through the text itself, talk about some of these themes in a little bit greater detail as we do so. Uh, Derek, do you have anything else to add just by way of overview, whether it be uh, historical or with the story itself? Well, you probably should never ask if there's anything more I have to say because I thought of something. And we will see throughout this text, especially naming this and situating it in the context of the judges, which was a wild time, right? Mm Mm-hmm. We see that they could not rely on, for example, law enforcement to fix their problems. Mm-hmm. And we see this throughout, well, throughout our time today. Um, but even back during Stonewall, uh, the police were not friendly to the LGBTQ folks, right? And so we can see how um, many people's instinct is oh, if there's a problem, let's just call the law enforcement and they'll fix all this stuff. We really see how people strategized within the system to fix some of it themselves. And it wasn't, quote, waiting on God's timeline and it wasn't calling the cops. So I just want to decenter the, um, the sort of police or the solution to everything. So let's get into chapter one. So like you said, there was a famine in Bethlehem, which is sort of a literary irony because Beit Lechem means the house of bread. And uh, that famine happens. (laughs) Yep, no bread. And and I should say that a lot of people think of Israel as a desert place, and parts of it were desert, but parts of Israel of Israel were and are very, very fertile. It was it was a very fertile land in, in much of the populated areas of, of this of this territory. So uh, they were depending on this bread and then they couldn't. So like you said, Elimelech and Naomi go to Moab, which is the historical enemy of Israel. Like mm-hmm. you uh, like you said, it's the offspring of Lot and his eldest daughter. 
it's an embarrassment uh, it's to be a Moabite from the Israelite perspective. They were not part of God's covenant people. And in fact, intermarriage was prohibited by the intermarriage with the Moabites was prohibited in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6. So we'll see that Ruth and Boaz's marriage is, uh, is transgressive in that way. And to see how culturally transgressive this is, it's good to look at the characters from within the narrative and use their voices, right? What Ruth does should be surprising to us because everyone knows that exactly what they should do is uh, Ruth and Orpah both should have abandoned Naomi. They had no obligation to her. Right. Mother-in-law, but there was nothing connecting them um, ethically or legally. And they should have just gone back and married Moabite men. And they could have lived happily ever after. They were young enough to still have... uh, have a man provide for them. Mm-hmm. and uh, But then Naomi would be left out. So what Ruth does by making a covenant with Naomi is extremely transgressive. Even Naomi says that, that you don't have to do this, right? Mm-hmm. That should tell us how transgressive this was. Even Naomi said, and so Orpah tells us what's normative, to just go back and marry a Moabite man. By the way, I need to pause and say, let's talk about patriarchy for a second. Because... Part of the solution in Ruth is, oh, they get a husband, and that fixes everything. Right. And That's we, where their we security comes from. And we don't need to let that piece uh, go unquestioned, right? We should question that on another level to an- analyzing this. But within the story, this is what they're working with, right? So right. that's their choices. And many oppressed people have to work within the system, within the choices they actually have. There's no way that they could topple the expectation that every woman needs a, a man in order to uh, be protected and have financial security and have um, children and all this other stuff. But that's the way it was. It doesn't need to be the way it need. It doesn't have to be that way. But that's the way it was, and that's what they're working within. So Orpah does the culturally normative thing in verse uh, 14 of chapter 1. And they raised their voice, and this is the daughters-in-law, and they raised their voice and wept once more, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah goes back, and Ruth clings. I should say that this is the same cleaving that we see with Adam and Eve. It's the same Hebrew word as in Genesis, where... Uh, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, right? Same word, right? Very important resonance here because it's not good for the human Ha'adam to be alone in Genesis 2.18. And mm-hmm. Naomi was in a very, very tough spot. No one in the ancient world of any gender could survive alone. And so that's where we get back to Ruth. It was her love for Naomi, her same gender love for Naomi, which transcended the norm. It transcended and transgressed the expectation. And that is queer enough without needing to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Some queer readers want to make Naomi and Ruth a, a, a sexually active couple. I don't see that as narrated in the text. And I don't need that either. Being queer is about bucking the system and committing to chosen family over biologically family. And that is fully queer enough. And we also say, as see, as you see, um, as you said, that it's a pro-Gentile text. Her identity as a Moabite woman is listed many times in this text. It's highly mm-hmm. emphasized. And I don't mm-hmm. have time to talk about Jonah right now, but I just want to name one thing. Jonah is also a pro-Gentile text. Now, some people might come away with, and this is something that a lot of um, Come Follow Me resources don't do as well as we I think do is look at the connections and the contrast and perhaps the, the the balancing elsewhere. People will say, "Oh, well, Ruth did the right thing. She made covenants and joined God's covenant people, and that's the only way to have God's favor." Like if you can't be outside the covenant and like whatever. But if you look at Jonah, it's the exact opposite because Jonah's the one that says, "No, God can't have mercy on the Ninevites because they're not God's covenant people. They're not whatever." And God's like, "No, like." As long as they're not being wicked, I can still be kind to them. And that, and the Ninevites never were, they were asked to repent of their wickedness, but they weren't asked to join God's covenant community. So you see this, this contrast here, and we should never be rude to people of other, 
other religions or people who are not prepared or able for whatever reason to make this covenant to join our people at this time, right? That is not the only story. So do not use this um, to say, oh, well, she wasn't, she was a, a Moabite that repented of her Moabiteness, right? Because people mm-hmm. do this with, with converts of color all the time, right? Like it's okay. Yeah. Like there's no manner of rights here, but you've got to give up whatever, you know. I better you have stop to give up your that. culture. You have to give up your right. past and all that stuff to right. be among us. So I want to actually read Ruth's covenant. Uh, it's in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And Ruth said to Naomi, Do not entreat me to forsake you, to turn back from you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people is my people. And your God is my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. So may the Lord do to me, or even more, for only death will part you and me. Close quote. This is so beautiful. I don't even have time to unpack each of these phrases. But this is almost wedding language. I've even seen this used at weddings um, and heard it used as weddings because it's the joining of two people in a very in a very prominent way. But yes, Ruth makes on her own initiative, she wasn't told to do this, her own covenant, and she even uses God's covenant name, uh, signifying that, yes, this is the, the God of Israel that she is um, uh, pledging her life to. And like I said, Ruth went off the normative path, and you too will find power when you go off the normative path. Um, It makes all the difference. And she has the power to initiate a covenant and dictate the terms of her covenant, even though it was unprecedented. We have no example here of this kind of covenant. We do have Gentiles joining the community like Rahab earlier, Mm -hmm. but this particular way it happened is very interesting because it was done out of love for for someone else, uh, the love between these two women. These two women. And here's one thing that probably not a lot of other Come Follow Me resources are going to say, but it's profound. The most important covenants you make in your life will not be the pre-scripted cookie-cutter ones, right? That ordinance checklist, those are not the most important covenants you will make. The ones that you, the most important ones you will make will be the ones that are extraordinary, the ones that are in times of need. They will be the products of your own resourcefulness, being led by a spirit that blows where it wishes. The most important covenants of your life will be the ones that expand the reach of the word family. They will be the covenants that transcend and transgress traditional cultural norms in favor of actual loving kindness, and the Hebrew word is chesed here, a a covenant loyalty or loving kindness or mercy. Um, And the most important covenants will be born of informed disobedience, right? Hmm. Ruth's covenant was prompted by Naomi telling her to go back three times. And it's traditional in Judaism to tell converts not to uh, join three times. And then, they, then they're allowed to join. And so this is the covenant path. This is, uh, um, it's amazing how, how they got to make their own covenants. And I think we as Latter-day Saints don't think we can make any other covenants other than, ones, than the ones that are like on the little ordinance checklist Mm. Uh, but that's not what the covenant path is the covenant path is about committing to justice and equity and love and chesed anywhere you can right the they're all implicit and justified by our baptismal covenant where we mourn with those who mourn and and comfort those that stand in need of comfort like we can make covenants anytime we want and as a result we see that Uh, humans in Ruth learn to play the game. They work within the system as best they could to transcend the limitations of that system. I'm thinking about patriarchy here. And this is a very powerful observation that other resources might not make. So there are two different questions we can think about. Do we end an unjust structure when we have arrived at the ability to do so? That's one question. And how do we survive under an unjust structure when we're not in a position to abolish it completely yet? And the Bible more often answers the, the latter question about how to survive rather than whether we should change it. And I don't think that that means we shouldn't answer the first question. 
for example, the Bible never addresses the question of if we should completely abolish slavery when we are able to do so as a whole civilization. We're, it just doesn't cover that. But it does answer questions about how to navigate slavery when it exists to transcend um, and work against the harms of that system. And so we need to to wrestle with those are separate questions. Whoa, and just what? because <laughs> what? Like the Bible doesn't talk about I mean, I know it doesn't okay, I just want to make sure I understand you correctly. Like the Bible doesn't adequately address let me let me make sure I heard the statement oh, right. Yeah. Um Well, I'm wrestling with the fact that we can't find a clear um call for the for the empire-wide abolition of slavery, right? Paul does not call for the the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire. Okay, got you. Right? And how do we make sense of that? But I think if you transport Paul to the to the 19th oh i'm going to i'm going to step on a bunch of stuff i shouldn't step on it and take up too much time we, can, no, we should okay. maybe talk about this we should talk about this another time but my point is don't use the limitations of the bible to say hey now that we're in a place where we can actually abolish slavery um what do we do because scripture may not address those questions uh which is something that the pro slavery people used to their advantage in the 19th century right. anyway that's all i'm going to say about it all right, cool. So throughout the Bible, we get to see um, this. And here, what I'm, my point is, like, yes, Ruth and Naomi are working within the system, but that doesn't mean we can change the system later on if we ever get in a position where we can do so. So that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. Understood. Um, and I love the power of your custom-made covenants, the ones that you decide to make. And these are human-initiated human covenants and not cookie-cutter ordinances. And in these cases, the child of God names what they expect from God. And we see this in John's co Jonathan's covenant with David. We'll get that next week in 1 Samuel 18, which is another same-gender loving covenant. And how um, Jesus initiates a covenant between the beloved disciple and his own mother. We have an alternative family structure here. Like, there are so many ways that you can have covenant families outside the structures that we uh, currently recognize um, in the correlated church material. Mm. Let's look at first, uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. Uh, the, the people of Bethlehem uh, greet Naomi when she gets back, and she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for Shaddai has dealt great bitterness to me, I went out full and empty did the Lord bring me back. Why should you call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has borne witness against me and Shaddai has done me great harm? And Mara means bitter. So what I love about this is that no, Naomi protests against God and holds God accountable and says, look, this is what God has done. And she complains. I love the line in the I know my Redeemer lives hymn that says he lives to hear my soul's complaint. And we who are queer know that, right? And we are now punished if we expect God to hear our soul's complaint. They're like, no, just wait for God's timeline or it's all situated, whatever. No, he lives to hear my soul's complaint. He's going to be hearing my soul's complaint as long as I have a complaint. So did you have anything else about chapter one? Let me have a look. Let me have a quick look here. Um, let's see. I think something we uh, could talk a little bit more about, and you know, we don't have to, but uh, I, I don't want to miss the impact and the power of Ruth's loyalty, compassion, and uh, bravery on display in this chapter. Her her sense of chesed, as it were. Like, that's one of the, that might be the primary theme of, uh, you know, of, of the book of Ruth. 
I, I think the word you used was loving kindness. I, I really like that uh, that definition of hesed. Uh, there's it, it also can mean loyalty or faithfulness. It can it can pertain between God and a human a human community and between members of a family and all the main characters of. Uh, of this book of Ruth uh, displayed at different times. They manifest these acts of chesed. Like we see it with Naomi showing concern for the welfare of both Orpah and uh, Ruth, uh, you know, her widowed daughters-in-law, especially Ruth, although technically she has no obligation toward them. Uh, We're obviously going to see that from Ruth and cleaving to Naomi, uh, just going beyond all expectation and her seeking marriage with Boaz later, the family protector. And then Boaz, we're also going to see him act with with chesed uh, when he accepts the double responsibility of land purchase and marriage, you know, preserving the lineage and inheritance of a family that were that were almost that were almost lost. Um, And, you know, that's going to be another theme is uh, family continuity. Of course, uh, we've talked a lot. We've already talked a bit about the meaning of the names here, about the meaning of Naomi, Mara, uh, Ruth as I think friend or companion, something like that, I think is the meaning of the, mm-hmm. okay, cool. So, uh, there's that, but also, uh, just to go back to, uh, you know, Ruth's loyalty and her compassion, uh, something that's just super impressive about it is that, you know, Ruth apparently had family she could have remained with in Moab and, that she and that she has no real obligation to Naomi and that she's following Naomi into what is in essence enemy territory like she's an outsider at best and an enemy at worst in Bethlehem she knows nobody mm-hmm. has no guarantee of security basically starting over in the name of love for in the name of love for and loyalty to her mother-in-law and the God of Israel and i think something you wanted to cover today was just how we see abraham doing a similar thing leaving behind family and kin and all that other stuff leaving behind a lot but at least in that situation god was telling him to do so but like now we right. see ruth making these moves and you know ruth wasn't commanded by god to do all this stuff but she does it anyway Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't an, get promises from God either. No promises. Abraham gets promised land, blessings, and descendants. Right, right. As he's asked to go, but Ruth doesn't get any of that. She doesn't right. get any communication from God at all. She's doing this all on her own. And that is powerful and that is queer. Yeah, very queer. And uh, I, I feel like we just got a lot we can uh, learn from this in general, just folks on the margins, because I feel like. Uh, or we may feel like we're rolling the dice a bunch when we come to embrace something like the restored gospel. Like, yeah, we get these promises of what will happen when we embrace it. And uh, we're loyal to the restored gospel. But when we go to church, we may not always feel like we're welcome because generally speaking, the cultural space that we're in can be hostile or apathetic to our identities, kind of like a place like Bethlehem would be to a Moabite woman. Uh we may not feel like we have a place all the time or feel like the church can offer as much. In fact, this is analogous to what Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth when they initially protest her direction to remain in Moab. She's basically like, I don't got nothing to offer you here. I got no sons to give you, no security, nothing. Like, uh, even if I could uh, provide you a son, I got no husband and I'm too old to marry. So just go home. Like, uh, that's that's yeah. almost kind of like the messaging we might get in a, in a space like a church for people uh, like the queer community. Um, you know, she's telling them that, they, that she's got nothing for them and would prefer for them to be in Moab where they at least got families they can be with, a nation they're familiar with, gods they already worship. Because, you know, at, at least in back in this time, your ethnic identity determined what gods you worshipped. Like, that's how, mm-hmm. that's how tied to your ethnic identity, you know, your gods were. And, you know, obviously that works and that dissuades Orpah, but Ruth, knowing the risks, still cleaves to to Naomi because she'd rather risk further destitution and cultural ostracization than leave Naomi alone, than not uh, live into chesed. She she feels like she can handle that, so she goes. And we obviously know know how this story ends, but we're not going to talk about that just yet. 
but how much more shall we who are on the margins and have great loyalty and love for the restored church of Christ be blessed for rolling the dice when we go to church in spite of the possibility that we will struggle in a place that doesn't always feel welcoming, in a place that doesn't always have answers for us. And in saying this, I'm not saying that anyone who can't join us at church doesn't have enough love or loyalty for it. Not at all. Like even with a lot of love and mm-hmm. loyalty, some folks just don't have the uh the uh you know, the emotional stamina to be in such a volatile situation. And maybe that's not even it. It just might not be a place that's emotionally or spiritually or mentally healthy for them, especially in a time of trauma. And I don't think the Lord condemns folks for that. I don't think God condemned Orpah for leaving uh, Naomi behind. Like it just wasn't a practical situation to enter. Uh, And it doesn't appear that she was punished for leaving Naomi. She made the culturally acceptable and understandable choice. All we know of her as she fades into anonymity is that she returns to her old gods. And all we can ask ourselves is, what if? Uh, That's all we can do. We can be Ruth or Orpah at different seasons of our lives, uh, I imagine. Some of us have counted the cost of being a Ruth and are here, despite the discomfort we may that that we may experience or that we do experience because of our loyalty to the gospel mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. I think you know a lot about that, Derek, as I as I say yeah. all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, people like us have been sustained in the midst of that, perhaps even because of it. But others of us are like Orpa, making sure we have the support we need at a time of trauma. And I and I believe that is I believe that's OK, too. So uh, I think that's all I got to say about chapter one before we. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, you got anything to add? I think I said nope. a lot of things there. No, I'm going to I'm going to maybe come back to some of that, but we're going to I'm going to go on to Ruth chapter 2 because there's an, an important piece here cuz we you know what we hear all the time is thoughts and prayers. Uh, they like something bad happens, up oh, thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. But w- what is that? Does that I love what what James chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead, and right? And all mm-hmm. these well wishes with no action behind it um, are worthless, literally worthless. Yeah. So let's talk about what Boaz does because I don't want people to miss this. Boaz prays and then puts his prayers into action. Let's look at chapter 2, verses um, uh, 12 and 13. So Boaz is answering uh, Ruth about why... Um, why Boaz is help uh, helping her. And Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord requite your actions, which is her acts of chesed to help Naomi. Uh, may the Lord requite your actions and may your reward be complete from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to shelter. So yes, this is a prayer. This is saying, look, may God bless you and may, you know, But Boaz is the one that does it. He prays for Ruth and then he feeds her and protects Mm -hmm. her and then Mm -hmm. eventually marries her. He doesn't pray and then do nothing. He prays and then does the thing that he prayed for. I think it's Pope Francis that says, oh, yeah, we pray for the poor and then we feed them. That's how prayer works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, because prayer changes us and then we change things. So much of the covenant path relies on our own resourcefulness and initiative. And then look what look at what Ruth responds in, in verse 13. May I find favor in the eyes of my Lord, uh, which is um, Boaz, okay? Mm-hmm. For you have comforted me and have spoken to the heart of your servant when I could scarcely be like one of your slave girls. Now, what's interesting, so she has a prayer too, but then she has initiative. She works the system. She works it until she it works. And then um, and we see how she arranges with Naomi how to seduce Boaz, and, it, and she actually takes the initiative to um, accomplish the results of her prayer, may I find favor in the eyes of my Lord. Mm-hmm. And so same thing with queer people, people who are praying for change on queer issues. You got to work for change, too. That's how prayer works. Yeah. And yeah. we see that in this text, God works behind the scenes through means that appear ordinary and not miraculous. There's so many people who mm-hmm. say, we'll just wait on God's timetable and he'll like bomb us with some light knowledge from out of <laughs> nowhere. Nah. Like, that's not how God works most of the time. No. Nah. In Ruth, there's no... 
um, major miracles. There's no divine intervention in the in the text except for two places. The ending of the famine in Bethlehem is attributed to God, but that could be you know natural too. And Ruth having a baby um, is attributed to God, but both of these can be seen as quite natural, non-miraculous events. Everything mm-hmm. else that happens in the text is is human-driven. And there's other texts in the Hebrew Bible where God works behind the scenes, such as Esther and the Song of Songs, where God isn't even mentioned. And I think that's a powerful um, thing to say in the face of queer injustice, injustice for queer people. Like, oh, well, God's going to take care of it eventually. Like, no, God has empowered us to take care of it. We mm-hmm. pray and then we work. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that uh, Boaz, both Boaz and Ruth are um, types of Christ in the sense that they point towards Christ and they act like Christ and they help us see Christ's uh, what Christ does, right? right. So Ruth does, uh, Christ does for us what Ruth does for Naomi and Christ does uh, for us what Boaz does for Ruth. And I think... Christ does for us what the community does. Um, And some of this is going above and beyond the obligation. Yes, gleaning was an obligation, allowing people to glean. But but Boaz goes beyond that. He gives Ruth extra grain that he wasn't required to give her. Out Mm -hmm. of the chesed of his heart, he he does that. Um, There is an obligation to take care of widows, though, so maybe that counts as a... um, but notice how Ruth uses her privilege to help Naomi. She's able to get married again. She's young right. enough to have a kid, and she uses that not for her own uh, purposes, but to to bless Naomi. Right, right. And so I want to show also that Boaz uses his privilege to protect Ruth. He is rich. He has the ability to command his uh, his lads, and he uh, charges his lads in in verses fifteen and sixteen of chapter two. Uh, saying, well, let her glean and don't harass her. And uh, who knows what that type of harassment would have been. Um, it, remember, this is the time of the judges where there's a lot of um, a lot of violence and a lot of uncontrolled depravity. Right. But right. he used he used his his influence to provide for the safety, both um, physically and financially and emotionally for for uh, for for Ruth, and then ultimately for Naomi as well. And so used I to protect her as well. Like yes. used his privilege to actually mm-hmm. stop what could potentially be sexual right. assault. Right. Um, I want to move on to chapter three, and here Naomi and Ruth hatch a plan to seduce Boaz. Okay, uh, real quick. Sorry. Yeah. While we're still while we were still in chapter two, I just wanted to point out one more thing uh, about who Boaz is. It looks like. Uh, I think I feel like one of the reasons Boaz may have been so impressed with Naomi uh, being a Gentile who, you know, came back to Bethlehem with uh, Naomi and clung to her. You know, Boaz's own family history may have also been a factor oh, in yeah. his impression of uh, of uh, Ruth. Uh, it looks like, at least from the geneal- genealogy that we have in Matthew, that uh, Boaz was uh, the the son of Rahab. Uh, who we went over a few weeks ago, the Canaanite mm-hmm. sex worker who found faith and was spared the destruction of Jericho. Uh, perhaps because, uh, you know, he was impressed with his own mother's story, assuming he knew it. He was also impressed with, uh, you know, Ruth's story, given that she did a very similar thing, turned to the gods of the Israelites, exercised that kind of faith, and ultimately... Uh, display chesed, uh, you know, in her life. So I just wanted to point that out, that Boaz's family history may have had something to do with uh, his opinion of Ruth and his impression of uh, his impression of her. Sorry. Chapter three. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So chapter three, uh, Naomi and Ruth hatch a plan to seduce Boaz. And this is their act of working within the system to overcome the system, right? So they're still working within this patriarchal environment, but they transcend it in a number of really brilliant ways that I think are so helpful for queer people who are trying to thrive in a system that's not designed for us here in the church. So just I want to name that. And then later in chapter four, Boaz helps to hatch a plot to get the nearer kinsman redeemer out of the way. So to back up, we've got this leveret marriage system where you have to 
um, marry your dead brother's uh, widow. Dead husband's brother? Yeah. Okay. Um, where, I mean, yeah. So if you're, uh, if you're uh, a dude and your brother dies, uh, you have to marry his, his widow. Gotcha. Uh, and same thing if you've got um, um, other extended family. And we see this with Judah and Tamar, which, of course, Boaz is a descendant of Judah and Tamar. And I think that is, a, is an important thing to name as well in, in his history. So we've got that thing going on. Uh, but there's this nearer kinsman. So Boaz isn't even technically obligated to marry Ruth because there's someone closer who's supposed to do it. But he gets him out of the way. Um and I want to say that here we've got this famous scene on the threshing floor, which I just want to briefly name as important. We have erotic material in the text of our sacred scriptures. I think that needs to be named. And I don't think that the narrator is portraying them as having sex on the threshing floor. I do not think that they have sex yet in the narrative. It is a sexually charged scene, and it's sexually suggestive, and there's all sorts of like winks and nudges that, that make it exciting. And, and uh, a little bit scandalous, but they're not actually having sex yet. Even when it says that Ruth uncovers his feet, that's not them having sex. So we've got clear erotica in the scripture, which I'm going to get in trouble for this. I want to call it covenant pornography, uh, but people that get mad at one. that. People can <laughs> get mad at that because th- there's actually a covenant here. In the in the in the middle of this porn scene, Boaz makes a, an original covenant with Ruth. It is in uh, verse fifteen, and uh, uh, oh, let's where am I? Hmm. Where it is? Oh yeah, in verse thirteen. Spend the night here, and it shall be in the morning. Uh, oh wait, no, hold on. Oh, yes. Here it is. Verse 13. So Boaz says to Ruth about this nearer kinsman redeemer, whose name is erased, by the way. He, his name, we don't know his name. His name right. is intentionally released. He's, uh, he's essentially called a so-and-so. Uh, Spend the night here, and it shall be in the morning. Should he, the so-and-so, the nearer kinsman redeemer, should he redeem you, he will do well to redeem. And if he does not want to redeem you, I myself redeem, will redeem you. That is the covenant, as the Lord lives. This is covenant language. So we have here covenant pornography. Um, lie, he'll, lie here till morning. Anyway, so uh, I don't know. Maybe people aren't ready to hear about covenant pornography, but oops, there it is. <laughs> it's there in the text, and we have to wrestle with it. Yeah. So um, they'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. <be> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but they're doing it in the service of um, Chesed, in the service of chosen family, in the service of um, uh, protection of the widow, transgressing the norms around um, whatever. So, anything you wanted to say about chapter three? I guess while we're uh, talking about Boaz, I uh, kind of want to talk about Boaz as an ally, as a type of an ally. Like uh, mm-hmm. he he knows the system uh, that we're in, uh, the patriarchal one that doesn't provide for, you know, uh, husbandless and destitute women. But uh, we're going to see him being more than willing to try to make the system work for those outside the law. Like we saw what he did when he first came across Ruth. He made sure he like uh, that she had everything she needed in terms of food and protection, given the system that they were in, uh, tried to make them tried to make the system work for those outside the law and beyond anyone's responsibility. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's what Boaz mm-hmm. did. He saw, like he recognized how the system worked and still made things work for Ruth um, outside the law and beyond his responsibility. So I just kind of wanted to uh, point to Boaz as somebody who is a great example of how to operate uh, in systems that are not set up for those who are not like you to succeed. Uh, he used his privilege within that system. Like he, he's a great, uh, I, I think the George Lakey identifier is uh, advocate. He operated within the system or worked within the system right. as an agent of the system to make things better for those who are outside of it or who were dispossessed by it. Um, 
So I just want to make sure people ponder the kind of person that Boaz was and how he operated as an ally. He he literally used and weaponized his privilege to protect and provide mm-hmm, for people mm-hmm. outside of that or people who the system was not designed and set up to uh, to help. And you know who didn't do that was the so-and-so, the nearer The so-and-so, the reading. unnamed yeah. dude. <laughs> like, exactly. I think it is so rich that in a text where all these names have symbolic meaning and, and resonance, yeah. we do not even get the name of this dude, right? He did Which not do hurts. The, his, he didn't even do his obligation, right? He did nah. not extend his privilege to, um, to Ruth and Naomi and their protection. I mean, he almost did. He almost did until he realized what obtaining the land was going to mean. Like he was going to do, he was going to do something until he realized what taking the land would also entail. And you see how right. Boaz. He didn't want to risk his own privilege. He right. did not want to divest right. his, his Ooh. standing. Ooh. So, Ooh. yeah. That's it right Ooh. there, Derek. That, that is, is it yeah. right there. If you do not divest your privilege, you get your name wiped out. Let me just say that. I kind of, I kind of just want to read that right there, uh, if that's okay. Sorry, finish okay, your thought. Okay, let's do that. Oh, that's all my thought was. Okay, but um, yeah, when Boaz actually, he's a, he's about to go up to the so and so, or he actually has a meeting with the so and so, has some witnesses there, and he tells the so and so about the land that needs to be redeemed, and uh, he says, "Look, you're first in line for this. If you want to redeem it, you can." And then the man says, okay, I will redeem it. Then verse five, look at what Boaz does. Boaz is just like, okay, the day you require the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. And then at this, the next of kin said, oh, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So look, like... He was down until it was not beneficial to him. Like he was all about the redemption because that means he would get some more land. But then he found out, oh, I got to take a Moabite for one thing. I have to take a wife and I got to redeem this in a way that might jeopardize my own inheritance. So when the chips really fell down, this next of kin was not about that life because Mm -hmm. ultimately he was going to at least according to him, lose more than he was going to gain. So like, this is the kind of trap we can fall into as people of privilege. We often can see that there is a cost to our allyship. We could stand to lose things as well, even as we're gaining things in the process and ultimately decide to step away from proper allyship because it simply costs too much or it's too inconvenient. And then we, and then we ultimately end up like this unnamed next of kin just an unnamed person mm-hmm. who doesn't yeah. end up being anybody in this story and anybody important in it other than a footnote. Right. And and he doesn't get any descendants either, uh, apparently. No uh, David. Yep, he's, <laughs> no he's not the ancestor of, of the Messiah. Um, but what's interesting is how even here they work within the system. I really think that, that Boaz is intentionally trying to get this dude out of the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because of his love for, for Ruth and, and they, there actually is a provision in the Torah to get that person out of the way. Um, it's the, the, the ceremony that's in Deuteronomy 25. And I think we talked about that. If, um, if a man is unwilling to redeem his, uh, brother's widow, then with this ritual of removing the sandal, he can release himself of that obligation. And so they use that ritual. They work within the system to transcend the system to do to get what they want out of the system. And um, it, it's so beautiful. And that's um, that's here in in chapter four. And I want to quickly name that uh, in verses. So the end, of course, they have a, a child. Um, and notice that this child is now raised up to the uh, Malone, which is Ruth's uh, dead husband, mm-hmm. to his name. And therefore, it is uh, part of Elimelech's name and, and Naomi's child in a sense. And so it's so beautiful that the, the women get the final word in this narrative. Mm-hmm. Then it says, and the women said to Naomi, this is verses 14 and 15, blessed is the Lord who has not deprived you of a redeemer today and let his name be proclaimed in Israel and may he 
uh, and this is Boaz, may he be a restorer, or, or is it the child? No, it's the, the Boaz. And may he be a restorer of life for you and a support for your old age, as your daughter-in-law, whom you love, has borne him, who has been better to you than seven sons. Mm. And I love this. It subverts mm. the patriarchy. In a climate where the sons are the important ones, this woman, a Ru- Ruth, a Moabite, a foreigner, someone off the margins in so many ways, she is better than seven sons. That is the that is an amazing compliment that the mm-hmm. women of the community uh, name. It's the daughter-in-law that's better than seven sons. And then Naomi took the child and placed him in her lap and became a nurse for him. And the neighbor w- women called a name for him saying, a son has been is born to Naomi. It's not that the, a son has been to Malone, which is the 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 dead uh, the dead husband whose whose son this is theoretically um, counted as, but it's a oh, son is born to Naomi. She is restored to community. She is not left alone. She is not left um, unsupported in her old age. Like we have a ground grassroots solution to the problem. Right? Mm-hmm. They didn't wait on law enforcement. They didn't wait on God. They didn't wait on church leaders. They didn't wait right. on anyone. Right. They made it happen. Mm-hmm. I love this so much. And they called his name, the son, Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Amazing. That um, that she became the ancestor of David and the ancestor of Messiah. And of course... Like you said, Matthew's genealogy lists women, including Ruth. It is mm-hmm. very rare to list the women, and mm-hmm. she is an amazing um, hero for me. Boaz is an amazing hero, too. And I love how we've got some contrasts with Ruth and Abraham, like you said. Both leave their lands and families and their gods. Um, but Ruth was promised nothing that Abraham was promised, mm-hmm. land descendants and blessings, and she went anyway. So that's what I have to say about Ruth. All right. Just on this whole better than seven sons thing, um, you know, the women, the women in this story of Bethlehem, they they did praise Ruth for what she had done to restore Naomi's family. They told Naomi that she had a daughter-in-law who loved her. And for this reason, she was willing to leave everything behind family, home, gods to follow her. Like that kind of commitment of a woman to another woman could not be expressed even by a son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is why I think they used that, uh, they, they told Naomi that Ruth was better than seven sons and that number seven, mm-hmm. obviously in the scripture, like that's the number of completion of fulfillment I mean, that's the ideal family in Israel. A man with seven sons was a father whom God had richly blessed. A father of so many sons would be called blessed by everyone in uh, his community because his sons would support him in his old age and was assured that his name would continue in Israel. But Naomi had no sons, and she had something more valuable than that, a daughter-in-law who through her son would revive Naomi's life, uh, assure that the one who was childless would become the mother of a numerous and flourishing mm. family. Um, yeah. So I just, I, I just love that. Um, while we're still on Ruth uh, and contrasting Ruth with Abraham, I also want to contrast uh, Ruth with uh, Joshua. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, when I last read uh, the Hebrew Bible and I finished uh, Joshua, I was not ready to go to Judges. I went straight to Ruth because I just needed to like not do that yeah. for a little bit. Um but just uh, Ruth talks about inclusion rather than exclusion. It talks about Ruth as a non-Jew, a Moabite, ending up worshiping the God of Israel, becoming the great-grandmother of King David, and consequently the ancestress of Jesus Christ. The whole story, as it were, uh, subverts Joshua's insistence on exclusive identity. It, it could very well be read as a refutation of the policies that we read in Joshua, in Ezra, and in Nehemiah. Like mm-hmm. Joshua's persistent construction of an exclusive identity appears to have been countered by Ruth's story, where Ruth literally embraces uh, is, you know, Israelite identity and is adopted into this family and becomes uh, you know, ancestor to Jesus. In it, 
in the book of Ruth anyway, God welcomes all people. The foreigner gets hospitality. Ruth is welcomed by an Israelite elite. Foreigners are welcome to join the people of God. Chesed is a theme throughout the whole story, and Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are all around to display it. Um, there, there's just something profound about the story of Ruth and its themes of inclusion and loving kindness, uh, especially when with regard to foreigners and hospitality to foreigners held in distinction to Joshua, where the command to exterminate them and to overtake them, to supersede them, is just such a dominant uh, part of the story. Um, it just gives us something further to wrestle with. Granted, we haven't gotten into, or I haven't reviewed the reasons for this extermination, for this colonization in the book of Joshua, but I just found uh, the book of Ruth to be a breath of fresh air in you know, contrast to the book of Joshua, where the other is excluded, where we are reintroduced to a God that... Uh, is okay with exterminating, you know, the other with the foreigners rather than bringing them in, rather than, you know, condemning, uh, condemning the Israelites for wanting to make treaties, uh, you know, with the with the outsiders. Mm -hmm. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just so, just something else to think about. It just makes me wonder what if there was another way to uh, to engage. Uh, the Canaanites, another way to engage the non-Jewish population, the non-Israelites, other than having to exterminate them and take their land. But, you know, that's a conversation for another day, just something that was right. brought to mind by by Yeah, Ruth. and that's why, like I talked about having a canon within the canon, if I want to know how to treat foreigners, I'm going to go to... Um, I'm going to go to this text and not the the ones that command genocide or extermination or getting rid of the the, the foreigners. Well, I want to say a couple things real quick about First um, Samuel, and I'll make it real quick. So people really need to go and read this, but so Hannah is in a marginalized position. She uh, is a um, one of two wives, and she insists on her truth to Eli, who is a priesthood leader, when he doesn't fully understand her. She makes her own original covenants with God. She says, look, God, do this and I'll let me have a child and I will um, dedicate him to you for life. So she makes her own original covenants with God. She names the terms and then she sings her truth about the birth of her child, Samuel, uh, in, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. It's very similar to the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. There's a lot of reversal of fortunes, um, the first shall be last type language, the hungry go away failed and the rich go away empty-handed. Um, I just think it's a really great text that unfortunately we don't have much to, to much time left, but people should really ponder that and see another voice of another woman who is able to name her truth despite someone mansplaining to her that, oh, no, you're just drunk and you're whatever. Like, no, she's, she's, she names it, and she prevails. Mm -hmm. Let Hannah prevail, okay? <laughs> Very nice. Nicely done, Derek. Right. And there's a sense in even which she prevails with God, um, and she's able to, to work the system towards her advantage. Anyway, so that's all I have to say about these texts for now. All right. Sounds good. It's a solid, it was a solid, you know, hour or so of conversation on the, on this uh, text. Uh, I, I, I did anticipate that we were going to spend a lot of time in the book of Ruth because it's just such a rich text and it's kind of cruel that we were going to have to try to fit, you know, the first three chapters of Samuel in with Ruth when uh, the first three chapters, particularly, you know, Hannah's song is such a, you know, a beautiful moment in the text. And I, Hate that we don't really get to talk about it some more, but maybe we could go ahead and do a social media post on it because Hannah's song is actually really yeah, quite it's profound. Great. It's it's great. But anyway, uh, just for the sake of time, though, we will go ahead and end the conversation for now. But before we uh, get into our closing exercises, as you will, I want to remind y'all that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second 
is a dialogue book report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and on Facebook by searching for Beyond the Block. And my 30 days of relentless nonviolent resistance against uh, straight supremacy, that will be on my personal Facebook page at facebook.com slash Derek.Knox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be sure to check that out. Um, yeah, it's just, gonna be it's gonna be really lit. Is that the right word? Lit. I mean, it doesn't sound right coming out your mouth, but I will give you proper usage of it. Like you did <laughs> use it properly, uh, <laughs> so I applaud Yay. the effort. Also, I noticed that it was in uh, your Elders Quorum newsletter, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. But I also saw who your Elders Quorum president was, and uh, strikes me like I saw him at my. Uh, talk back or my uh, feedback session for my course he actually seems like a really cool mm-hmm. dude so yeah i'm not surprised at all that this was included in your elders quorum newsletter you're like both the uh talk about the celebration of pride and the inclusion of your uh, facebook posts for the next uh, mm-hmm. you know 30 days or whatever um yeah they they gave me a lot to think about uh your your first two posts anyway so i definitely would encourage people to check those out uh yeah but anyway if there is nothing else, just want to uh, make sure that these... Uh, oh, yeah. want to give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with mining the social media content, and, of course, the team for doing the work of assembling our episode line outlines, including uh, Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, the outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the margin study helps. Uh, link to the outlines are going to be in the uh, show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. Is there anything else we got to put the folks on to? Nope, that's it. Very good. Then thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Well, I couldn't let this go without a joke. Ah, damn. So what kind of man was Boaz before he got married? Ruthless. (laughs) I hate everything. I hate everything. Okay. Well, with that, I'll talk to everyone later. (laughs) Bye-bye. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.